Takes is a podcast from BCA Research, informing investors with straightforward, actionable analysis of macro and market events. Hi there, and welcome to the Quick Takes podcast. I'm your host, Rakaya Ibrahim, strategist at BCA Research. Over the past week, we've seen a sharp escalation in the long-standing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The catalyst was a surprise attack on Israel carried out by Hamas. Israel is now retaliating with an offensive in Gaza. The conflict raises many questions about the implications for the broader Middle East. Will it impact negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Israel to form a security pact? Did Iran play a role in the Hamas attack? Will the conflict escalate to a regional war? And what are the implications for oil markets and the U.S. elections? To help answer these questions, this week I spoke to my colleague Matt Gherkin. Matt is BCA's chief geopolitical strategist, and he's been highlighting that a Middle East conflict is the most underrated geopolitical risk. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hi, Rakaya. Thanks for having me back. So, Matt, when it comes to financial markets, a key question that's stemming from the war between Israel and Hamas is whether the conflict will broaden and draw in major oil producers, which would raise the risk of an oil supply shock. So far, the oil price reaction has been quite muted. Crude oil prices did initially jump on Monday, but over the past few days, they've been broadly unchanged and they're still below where they were near the end of September. So my question here is, do you think that oil markets are underrating the risks posed by the Israel-Hamas war? And what I mean by that is, first of all, given that the war has boosted broader Arab sentiment towards the Palestinian cause, how will the conflict impact negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia to form a security pact? And second of all, do you expect the conflict to broaden and include other regional players? And specifically here, we mean Iran, which many speculate had a hand in the initial attack by Hamas on Israel. Great questions, Rukaya. So, yes, I do think the global financial markets are underrating the impact on oil. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the price will simply move up, that there will be a steady upward trend. So let me unpack that. There's been a crosswind all year, which is the Restrictions on global demand resulting from restrictive monetary policy and the the secular slowdown in China's economy and the property bust in China. And so that's continuing and will continue in 2024. And I think that's what we should really keep our eye on on a 12-month view. But there's simultaneously these supply constraints in the oil sector. And we have highlighted these, particularly because several of them are geopolitical. There's Russia trying to restrain oil supply in, in the end game of the Ukraine war and ahead of the U.S. election. And then there's also what we had identified was a very high risk for disruptions in the Middle East. And this crisis in the Middle East confirms our view that there would be geopolitical disruptions, but it it has not yet translated to oil disruptions, and I think it will. But the risk will certainly go up, and so that, that will have to be priced. And as you can imagine, this is just going to create a very messy environment, and I think it's a volatility environment. And I think the end game, again, is to the downside because of global economic slowdown. But I think over the next six months, we could see a spike in oil prices. So let me kind of address your question about Saudi Arabia and Iran. First, the U.S. will continue to negotiate with Saudi Arabia towards some kind of agreement in which they strengthen their commitment to each other, their existing commitment to each other. I don't think it can involve a mutual defense pact because 
the U.S. was sort of demanding that Saudi Arabia recognize Israel. And that may not happen now because of the, as you say, the Arab sentiment will not be in favor of that. And that was always a little bit of a stretch. But that doesn't prevent the U.S. and Saudi Arabia from getting back together. President Biden went to Saudi Arabia in June of 2022, and he has been having to court Mohammed bin Salman and the administration there to try to get support and provide a more accommodative oil production policy, given that he faces an energy risk going into his election campaign. I think that will continue. And and really, Biden could offer large promises and and, and weapons transfers and, and try to shore up the Saudi relationship. And, and, and these events do not prevent that from happening. In fact, they, they could accelerate that process. So that's one key part. And it would mean that ultimately the Saudis might pump more. I have been of the view that they'll be probably late. They'll be dragging their feet in this negotiation with Biden because for the Saudis, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing if, if the Democrats lose the election next year. So I don't think they'll necessarily rush to rescue Biden, but I do think the odds of them providing a more accommodative oil production of, of policy are, are, are going up. And then with regard to Iran, the Americans have a strong interest in preventing this war from expanding to include Iran or Iraq and oil producing regions. And that's sort of symbolized by the U.S. sending the USS Gerald Ford aircraft carrier to the eastern Mediterranean rather than the Persian Gulf. Basically, the U.S. is saying they'll defend Israel and they'll deter Hezbollah or Iran from from taking advantage of Israel's situation. But they're not trying to escalate to include and confront Iran. And I think that'll continue. And if you think about Israel's situation, they've just been shown to be extremely vulnerable at home in the Gaza Strip, which also implies that they're vulnerable from the north. And so really a unilateral military attack against Iran would be extremely irrational for Israel right now. They would need to have America on their side and supporting that kind of action. And maybe the Biden administration would agree to that in 2025, but not in 2024. So bottom line there, I think Israel will be focused domestically. The U.S. will be restraining Israel not to confront Iran. The U.S. will try not to confront Iran as it has been doing. It's all an issue of that there are risks that this could expand anyway. And and that leaves me with one final point, which is that because Israel needs to react and they have mobilized to a larger extent than in recent conflicts, and they will have enormous political capital, they very well could expand their retaliation beyond Hamas and Gaza. Right now, the story is they're going to retaliate against Hamas and Gaza, and, and maybe that is how they will start. But they may ultimately end up taking on Hezbollah. And I think because that doesn't impact oil and because the Americans are sitting right there and saying they have Israel's back, I think the odds of that are a lot higher than the market expects. And again, that points to odds of oil being affected. It doesn't point to immediate impact on oil, but it points to a rising risk premium in oil prices. And in terms of the implications on the U.S. presidential election, so you mentioned that Saudi Arabia could potentially raise its oil production. So in that sense, do you expect that to boost Biden's re-election odds? And Biden's approval rating is, of course, extremely low. So do you think that a crisis could also contribute to supporting his incumbent advantage and boosting his odds of re-election next year? Yeah, great question. Yeah, his his approval rating is about 40% right now and a negative 15 percentage point on a net basis. And that's that you're right. That's just very bad. That's Trump levels. And it implies that that even if he gets a rally in his approval rating next year, which is normal for sitting presidents, it may not be enough to get him reelected. He won't rally in the way that Barack Obama did in 2012 because 
the economy will be decelerating next year. And he's not young and charismatic like Barack Obama. So he's an extremely vulnerable president. And now he has a crisis in the Middle East to add to his ongoing crises with Russia and China. And so I think that this is a precarious environment. I do think you're right that the initial impact would be to actually benefit his approval rating, particularly because he might stage a show of force. This is a period where the U.S. could very easily shoot a few missiles, Tomahawk missiles, take out some terrorists in Syria or or, or maybe, you know, help to take action to make sure that Hezbollah does not attack. And that would boost his approval rating in this context where he's he, he really desperately needs something to to change the direction. So I can see that happening. And then the problem for him is doing that without allowing it to involve Iran. Again, not allowing it to involve an oil price increase. And the key dynamic here, and I'll conclude with this, is that remember that Iran can destroy production and transportation in the region faster than anyone can compensate. So in other words, if it's just a matter of Biden doing a deal with MBS, we could get more oil production and that could be you know, weighing on the oil price. But if it's an issue of the conflict expanding to Iran or Iraq or, or the Persian Gulf, then you can't control this dynamic. You'll have sharp oil spikes. It will kill demand globally and it will damage Biden's reelection odds. Now, what about the long-term implications of the conflict? Are there any high-level geopolitical takeaways from what's happening in the Middle East at the moment and what is likely to come that you believe are important for investors on a go-forward basis? Yeah, I think, first of all, there's a big discussion about great power competition globally. And that, remember, was a narrative that supplanted the narrative of non-state actors or the global war on terror. You know, so in other words, we had a whole period after 9-11 where we were focused on terrorism. Then we have a new period where we're focused on great power competition, U.S. versus Russia, U.S. versus China. And now this will call attention back to non-state actors like Hamas. But I don't think investors should see that as a durable narrative because the end game here is a conflict with Iran. And that is part of the great power competition. Iran is not a great power. They're a middle power, but they could someday be a great power. Remember that we're looking at an Iran that's achieved nuclear breakout capacity. So they could become a nuclear armed state and they're backed by Russia and China and they already have enormous conventional capability in the region. So this is a power that could effectively try to recreate the Persian empire. And that's the whole reason why the Americans are opposed to Iran. And that's the reason why you have strange things like the Saudis and the Israelis trying to cooperate better. And so we will go back to great power competition. This is not a new narrative where we now go back to terrorism. It's, in fact, the same narrative where we're focused on great power competition. And then the U.S. was trying to pivot, remember, because the U.S. became a net oil exporter and needed to compete with China as part of that great power struggle. And so the U.S. was trying to pivot to Asia. And we pushed against this narrative in the sense that we said that there was unfinished business in Iran, in the Middle East, and specifically related to Iran, and that this would probably yank the U.S. back into the Middle East. And I think that's happening. But remember that that dynamic is not positive for China, because, of course, China imports about half of its oil from the Middle East and will become extremely insecure in an environment where the U.S. is actually escalating military operations in the region, which you know, we talked about how the U.S. doesn't want to do that before the election. But after the election, you either have Donald Trump, who would be willing to escalate, or you have Biden, who would be capable of escalating if he needed to. And so we will see the U.S. maybe not able to pivot to Asia in the way that it imagined, 
But as it gets sort of entangled back into the Middle East, the U.S. will still take an approach that's offshore balancing, you know, trying to create a balance of power coalition to contain Iran and then striking from its naval force when necessary. And that is really not a great dynamic for China. So it can't be said to sort of strengthen China. And meanwhile, the U.S., of course, will be doubling down on technology controls over a multi-year basis on China. This issue also highlights strategy versus sort of economic engagement. Remember that the Western powers are constantly trying to use economic engagement as an, an incentive to deter states from pursuing aggressive national security policies that challenge the global order. And this has been failing, right? Germany built a Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Russia and convinced the Americans to endorse it, and then Russia invaded Ukraine anyway. So the Germans are now rethinking economic engagement, and they're having to rethink it even with regard to China, although they remain engaged with China. The U.S. engaged with China for 40 years and now regrets it. The Chinese have grown dramatically in their economic strength, and now they're converting that to strategic power. And the U.S. is uh, paranoid in trying to contain that economy now and contain that strategic power. So look what happened here. You know, Hamas pretended that they were engaging and that they were focused on economic development. And that's one of the ways that they tricked Israel. And so we'll see that the Israelis are no longer susceptible to those ideas that engagement will work. And then that ramifies to Iran because the Americans are trying economic engagement with Iran. Israel will say it's not going to work. The Republicans will say it's not going to work. If the Democrats are reelected, they might try to continue it, but it's getting a lot harder to uphold that argument given that Iran does ultimately back Hamas and Hezbollah and, and these uh, militant groups. And then finally, technology, you know, there was an enormous emphasis on high tech and sensors and drones and these capabilities. And, and that's going to continue. I mean, drones, of course, especially will continue to have a growing impact on warfare. But look at how Hamas was able to break through the barrier at 15 different places and, and commit this huge atrocity, even though Israel had the most sophisticated sensors and surveillance and weaponry. So there's a sort of realization that warfare constantly brings surprises and there's a need to utilize high technology without becoming obsessed with technology to the extent that you neglect the basics. And we also could argue that that exists in Russia where, you know, the U.S. has been providing Ukraine with superior technology, and that's been a great argument in favor of U.S. weaponry and global superiority. And, and that's been huge for Ukraine's defense of its country. At the same time, it did not prevent Russia from annexing these territories through conventional power and then building huge fortifications and waging a sort of World War I style trench warfare to keep those territories. So basically, we will see now going forward that low tech is going to have to be incorporated as well as high tech. And that just involves constant uh, adaptation among the different militaries. But the bottom line is there, the U.S. and other countries are all extremely focused on national security now, and they're not going to be able to simply make economic decisions based on a vision of globalization and free markets expanding uh, without any horizons. As always, Matt, thanks for joining me today and sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Rukaya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Quick Takes podcast. We'll be bringing you weekly quick takes with BCA strategists on a range of macro and market topics. Stay tuned for next week's episode.